In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as many of our high schoolers know, I'm a huge fan of The Office. Not my office downstairs, but of the TV mockumentary sitcom, The Office. One time, the youth group was on Zoom, and I think three of the eight of us had fake office backdrops. And I think I've watched through its nine seasons about four times each, and I'm going through it very slowly now for a fifth time, because I've been listening to a new podcast called Office Ladies. It's an office rewash podcast. Two of the actresses from the show, the two who play Pan and Angela, get together once a week to uh, answer fan questions, talk through an episode, and talk about what it was like to be on the set filming this show. It's really fun, and they're comedians, and so it's been a nice break from all the other news podcasts of politics and pandemic right now. But it's also been really interesting to me to hear them talk about what it was like to film the early seasons of that show. By the time that I started watching it, it had gotten pretty popular. I had been hearing about it for a few years from friends. But when it first started, The Office was kind of an underdog. The cast and crew didn't know whether the pilot would be picked up, let alone whether it would make it through its first season. And so they literally got together to film the first episode. They had a really fun time, they thought it was a great show, they loved the characters, and then they all felt sad when they finished filming that first episode because they were sure that the show would never really exist. Then it got picked up for a first season of six episodes, and then for a few more episodes, and then the rest of a second season, and then it kept snowballing from there in popularity. The thing that's really amazing to me about this, though, and the reason that I'm talking about it here today, not just because I love The Office, is that the series revolves around the long and drawn-out will-they-won't-they kind of love story between the two wholesome pranksters at its center, Jim and Pam. If you watched this show and you didn't want Jim and Pam to end up together in the end, I don't know what's wrong with you. They're an adorable couple. But the audience and the actors and even the writers didn't know until well into season four or five whether they would really end up together in the end. So can you imagine filming a show and you didn't know whether it would even get through one season, let alone two? You didn't know whether the plot would ever be resolved? You didn't know whether it would just be a snapshot of the drama of this romance that ended suddenly? If you're writing a novel, maybe it gets rejected or maybe it gets published, but at least you get to write the whole novel. With a TV series, it's different. It can end before it ever really gets off of the ground. The whole plot just dangles by a thread with a TV exec on the other side with scissors. Shifting gears in an incredible way that will eventually make sense, I think, to our first reading. This story of the binding of Isaac is terrifying and beautiful and strange. It is, almost without a doubt, one of the most stunning literary achievements of human history and culture. I swear to you, don't take me up on this, I swear to you that it's worth learning Hebrew just to be able to read this story. And yet, predictably enough, it's become almost unreadably heartbreaking to me since I had my first child. I can't imagine 
what Abraham is thinking. As one commentator writes, Abraham was forced to choose between his love for his child and obedience to an incomprehensible and abhorrent command. And he chose obedience. I sometimes find it helpful when I'm grappling with this kind of reading and I can't understand why we're still reading it in our public worship to turn to our spiritual ancestors. Because if people have been reading it for 2,000 years now, they must have had some reasons. And it turns out, indeed, that Jews and Christians alike have found meaning in this reading over the generations. One set of Jewish interpreters, for example, smushed together the binding of Isaac with the story that comes right after it, the next chapter of Genesis, in which Sarah dies at the ripe old age of 127. Ah, they say, Isaac is born when Sarah is a young woman of only 90 years old, in that surprise birth we've heard of in the last few weeks. So if in just a few verses she's 127, then the Isaac who Abraham nearly sacrifices here is not a young boy or a child. He's a grown man of 37 years old. And he's made an adult decision to give up his own life in obedience to God. When these interpreters were writing, when they were reading this story, it was a time of persecution of Jews like so many other times. And so this example of a biblical martyr was an inspiration to them, an example to follow as they suffered and died for refusing to turn away from God's commandments. This could be convincing, but you have to pretend that this story and the next story happen at the same time, and there's no reason to think that he was 37. Rather, it's more likely that he was, in fact, just a child in this story, and then years pass before the next. For many Christians, it was even easier to make sense of this story. From the earliest generations, after all, Christians could read this story as a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Christ. And so the Isaac who bore the wood for the fire on his own back becomes the Jesus who bears his cross on his own back. The human father who nearly sacrifices his only and beloved son out of obedience to God becomes the divine God the Father who really does sacrifice his only and beloved son out of love for us. Of course, this image too is horrifying, unless we set it in the context of the Trinity, in which it's not a father sacrificing a son, but through that strange Trinitarian logic, God sacrificing God's very own self for us. And it becomes an example of self-giving love, not of murder. Still, after all of this, when I try to find meaning in this story, at least this week I came back to those early seasons of The Office, when it seemed like the plot might end before it had even gotten off the ground. In the book of Genesis, God has promised that Abraham would be the ancestor of many nations. And looking at our history, we know that he has become the ancestor of what we call the Abrahamic faiths of all Jews and Christians and Muslims, four billion people in the world today. And yet, at this point in the story, that great lineage is hanging by a thread. In Genesis 21, Sarah has this surprise pregnancy at the age of 90 and gives birth, unlikely as it is. And Abraham's other son, Ishmael, his child with Hagar, nearly dies of thirst in the wilderness. And that's in 21. And then in Genesis 23, Sarah passes away at 127. 
and Abraham and Sarah's opportunity to create a family, God's opportunity to realize this promise of a great nation of descendants, comes to an end. So here we are, between the surprise birth and Sarah's death, stuck in Genesis 22 with one son, Isaac, and Abraham nearly kills him, nearly cuts off God's promise to create the great people, nearly ends the story of the great love affair between God and the people of God before it's really begun. Because this story so far is barely even a pilot episode for the Bible. This sank in for me on Tuesday afternoon. I was still unable to adjust to being home from summer vacation, and so I loaded up Alice's old Crazy Creek chair, you know, one of those folding chairs for camping, and I stuck my laptop and a water bottle and a baseball cap and a face mask and my trusty Hebrew Bible, and I went out to a shady spot in the park in the 90-degree heat to read and think and try to start writing this sermon. And as I flipped in the Bible to Genesis 22 to read, something clicked for me. I think maybe it was because I was going to look in the Hebrew Bible, and so you read right to left, and so you're flipping backwards. But there was something about the geometry of the page that just made me realize this is the very beginning. And I looked, and indeed, the story of the binding of Isaac occupies pages 31 to 32 of 1,574 in this printed copy of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, which isn't even our whole Old Testament, let alone our whole Bible. 31 to 32 of 1,574, barely even, not quite even, 2% of the Bible. And yet the story doesn't end. At the very moment when all hope seems to be lost, in the depths of Abraham's grief and despair, God is already writing a new story for God's people. It's a story that doesn't end with a pilot episode. It doesn't end on page 32. It keeps going and going for 1,500 pages, for 500, 1,000, 1,500 years and more. It keeps going as generations of Jews and Christians try faithfully to interpret this text, as we write new stories, as we write new meetings, as we write new endings into it. It keeps going and going as the love between God and the people of God grows and grows and grows, and as through them all the nations of the world, and that's us, are blessed. Our stories are not yet over either. The church's story of community and love and fellowship and growth, the church's story is not over, even if we haven't seen each other in months. Our nation's story of racial justice and repair is not over, even if it's been 55 years since the Voting Rights Act and 155 years since emancipation. And our individual stories our individual relationships with our loving God are never over. Not after a new job or a move takes us away from our usual patterns. Not after a marriage or a divorce disrupts our life. Not after a new birth or a sudden loss change our emotional map. Not even after we die, when, as the prayer book writes, our lives are changed, not ended. 
Our stories are not over. It may seem exhausting to keep writing them sometimes, but the good news is that we're not the only ones in the writer's room. We don't bear total responsibility for the paths that our own lives take. We can't know where the other 98% of this plot is going to lead us. All we can do in times like these are to listen for God's voice calling our names and to answer like Abraham with the only truth we know for sure. I'm here. Amen.